All right, here with Dan. How are you doing, Daniel? It's 2023, and I think I might have COVID. It's very retro, isn't it? People had that that shit three years ago. I was an early adopter. I got it. My daughter didn't go to school on the last day of school before the camp before schools packed up. Yeah, because because I had it, and I had it in those days. I was I was in bed for like 16, 17 days in the bedroom, wow. where you're still at that point where you thought you might die. And I remember thinking that, well, my best mate, one of our other close friends, died tragically young. And so I consoled myself at the time with thinking, well, it just seems completely unlikely that this one guy will have his two best mates die tragically young. So maybe I'm safe because of that. And also, there was another guy I know from our community, just who was in serious trouble. He's fine, but he was in serious trouble. And I felt like, well, it seems unlikely that two relatively young, relatively fit people from the same community are going to get into serious trouble. But at that point, the thing that was sort of terrifying was because of most illnesses, you get ill. And then after a day or two, you're about as ill as you're going to get. COVID's not caught, wasn't like that. Yeah. I didn't die, as you may have suspected. But you get to a point, I got to a point where I was almost better. The first week, I was felt, barely felt ill at all. A lot of sweating and shivering, but not actual nausea or illness or anything. And then you start getting ill again. And because it can just like jump on you, you could have been fine to ill for 10 days. And then all of a sudden, so you wake up in the night, like because you might be drowning in your own sweat. Yeah. And then you're like, what's my breathing like? What does breathing sound like? Is this the day it all turns to shit? It turned out that it didn't, and I enjoyed it so much that, yeah, I'm, I might be back. Tomorrow. Well, you can console yourself, Dan, if the COVID gets you this time. Deep fakes are getting so good that we can just fake you from here on in, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <I'm>... <laughs> yeah you, you, will, you will live on. I might be a deep fake right now. It could be, yeah. You're not. You're not. But we, we were going to talk about David De Gea today because he's, he's left after much shenanigans with contracts may or may not have been offered. In the end, it seems to everyone agrees that it's Ten Hag's decision to pull the rug under the contract offer and then United are moving on. And it looks like the deal for Andrea Nana will be done this week. So I guess we'll do a retrospective on, on Dave's career at United. Where do you rank him in terms of keepers? Because at one stage, we had this, Paul and I used to have this debate, was he better than Peter Schmeichel or not? And I guess in the end, we're going to have to, that's not much of a debate, is it? <laughs> in the end, when you look over the 12 years at United. So, in interesting times. He's not proximate to proximate. I should say, that what, just to pick up the original point about the withdrawal of the contract offer, whatever happens, this seems to me to be a rare example of A, ruthlessness, and B, comp and I, I also feel like what we might be seeing from United this summer might be competence. Might, might be. <laughs> Not total competence. They haven't sorted out, they haven't sorted out the selling yet. Yeah. But they decided they wanted Mason Mount and they made it happen whilst doing everything they could not to get, not to have their pants pulled down by Chelsea, who knew that the manager had said, I want this player. And it wasn't really like there was a shortlist. And simply, then they've moved on to another. Then they're going to go and buy Hoyland. And then they'll presumably try and get Amrabat and whatever else they can get with proceeds of sale. But it does seem like there's a plan and they're pursuing the plan with sufficient success, as in the players and manager wants are arriving. Sure. And it's July, middle of July. I mean, if United do two big so deals by the middle that. of July, yeah, it'd be absolutely amazing. I think I, I said on Twitter, I'm still expecting Ed Woodward to jump out and go, April Fools. 
because this is just not yes it's not very united like i mean we still haven't sold anyone i mean manchester city have managed to flog two youth team players who played i think a total 27 minutes in the premier league between them for 20 million 20 no it's nearly 30 million quid which in ffp terms is a 200 million pounds window but so united need to and do it's something because there. it's it's almost as if the person at southampton who bought the name of the player whose name escapes me and vincent company who's bought the goalkeeper are connected with city it's almost like and that isn't it, it is one of those things where so i mean it's really easy to get conspiracy theory conspiracy theorists about it but also it's really easy to explain it the other way that vincent company is well connected at city someone says this goalkeeper's good or he's seen him yeah and similarly with the guy at southampton who used to work at city he's thought well oh i know these players yeah, this yeah. player and he's good and i know the city aren't going to use him so it's really really easy to explain that way but also really easy to think how on earth are these players who've done the cube route of fuck all in their careers <laughs> yeah, exactly. so much money when united yeah. was struggling to get an amount a, a fair amount of money for players that actually yeah. have some kind of track record but well i mean of course there's, to... there's two sides to transfers one is one is the transfer fee and the other is the wages and and united part of united's problem with selling of course is that they're all on massive contracts even dean henderson is on more than 100 grand a week for a player's like had what one good season in his career and he's now 25 and 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 that's part of the reason he will not get a massive fee in fact he'll probably go for about the same fee that James Trafford has gone from from City to Burnley which doesn't make any sense given that that Henderson is a full international but it's about the wages as well so one in FFP era everyone tots up the full package it was a massive drop bollocks yeah there was I mean the Henderson situation was a drop Ole should have sold him after that after that season at Sheffield United. Yeah. Instead of saying you'll be my number one and then bottling it, when he yeah. could have got quite a lot, probably double what we're going to get for him in the end. But in terms of De Gea, I don't. I would like it to have gone differently for him. I'm sure he's upset with how it's gone, but ultimately the manager had to be ruthless and was because I think what happened was the manager definitely wanted a new goalkeeper. Yeah. I would hypothesize that he thought that if he had to, he could get by another season with De Gea if he had to. But also he knew that he was going to need De Gea for the end of the season. So they had to make nice and suggest that they weren't about to turf him out at the end because what, what else could they do in order to keep him nice? And then either it was always the plan to get rid of him because he's not good enough or his behavior in the run-in made it made getting rid of him an absolute emergency either of those two things could be true maybe both of them are true and i find it really hard to say well united should have done it a different way because i don't really see what the other way is or was and no i mean the other way is that ten hag decided much earlier in the season that the hair wasn't wasn't going to be his man but the thing that clearly, and, and as you said, the thing that clearly got in the waves is United's budgeting and lack of clarity about exactly how much money they'll have, both on both in terms of like the FFP position and actual cash, because it's basically going on the credit card. And, and so they're like, as you said, maybe they'll do one more season, but they were never going, going to trigger that, that extra year because he's on ridiculous wages and clearly, clearly well overpaid. 
to be the best paid goalkeeper in the world for the last five years was obviously nonsense given his performances. So, I mean, it's good, it's good um, maybe that's good so great into thinking about his performances because I was looking at the data and it's one of those ones positions it's really, really hard to just kind of judge a goalkeeper, isn't there? There's the obvious stuff like he chucked a couple in in the cup final and against West Ham. <laughs> <laughs> and every other week, it seemed, it felt like. The West Ham one, you might forgive as a sort of Bobby Mims piece of goalkeeping because it was the game that in the end ended up not mattering. Yeah. But, so then a P roll like that. It just suggests a lack of focus, I think. Yeah. And I I, I was behind the famous goal for that first half he played for United in the league against West Brom. And he got a lot of shit that day because I think he made a mistake that cost the goal that they scored. But he made some phenomenal saves that day. You could see I didn't leave that game going why have we signed this dickhead? I left that game thinking this guy has fantastic ability. And I can see exactly why. They've spent months researching who the goalkeeper should be and why they've come up with the answer of being him. It, it's been up and down the last few years. He's, he's just underwater on his post-shot expected goals against, if you like that kind of that kind of stats this year and just above water last year. I mean, it's, it's 17-18, which is the standout one, where... He's effectively prevented 17 goals above the average keeper in the Premier League that year. It's it's the best performance by a keeper of any player in the last decade, if you judge it that way. And there's only one part of the, the judgment I guess we have to make on De Gea because because it's it's almost I mean, if you if you look at the the stylistic switch from De Gea to Anana, I mean it couldn't be more different, could it? And and it's almost as if the saving part of, of De Gea's performances for Ten Hag were only part of the story and, and the possession part is just as much and, and that has never changed under De Gea. He's never been good in possession, but he was competent enough at the start of his United career, but he got to the point where he just didn't fit the archetype that most leading managers seem to want these days, which is if you have a player who's good with his feet at the back, you basically have an extra player in order to beat the press, which is what Ten Hag wants. And then, so that was one thing. The stylistic fit was kind of uncomfortable. And then his his performances dropped off so much from that 17, 18 height to, to be like ranking him in sort of the bottom quartile of keepers in the Premier League, whether he got the Golden Glove or not. I mean, it's kind of a nonsense stat or award that one. And so it kind of, yeah, it kind of makes it easy, really. I mean, he made, still made some great saves last season, but the Golden Glove is because he had Casemiro, Varane and Martinez in front of him. Yeah. And also Luke Shaw had a good season, much more so. And yeah, I think with Hanna, I think we should prepare ourselves, perhaps, for some absolutely hilarious concessions as the team get used to playing with someone who does what he does. Yeah. I mean, I know Martinez probably used to it, but, yeah, I think a coach told a friend of mine a couple of years ago that this whole thing about goalkeepers being able to play only makes a proper difference if they're as good with their feet as Edison is. So you're Jordan Pickford. You yeah. can clip a pass to the touchline 30 yards. That's not going to change the way that your team are able to play. But on none that is, I mean, we can see it. Yeah, yeah. But he's got, he, he, can, he, he can ping off either foot. 
And he's also good on the ball in terms of, as you say, the extra man in the build-up where he's standing next to the centre-backs, in front of the centre-backs sometimes. I think that we're going to need, and maybe this is part of why we've signed Mason Mount as well, which sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but players who can take the ball on the half turn. Yeah, yeah. Because Anona's going to be pinging balls into them and expecting them to do that. And that's what they're, that's what they're going to have to do. And I think the thing with De Gea, it's the thing that pisses, that pisses me off with him is that the things that he should have improved, could, that he needed to improve, felt like things that you could improve. So you can get better at passing with your feet if you practice your arse off. I mean, I'm not saying maybe maybe he did and it didn't happen, but it just seems unlikely that you won't get better. But the thing that really affected how United play wasn't his inability to ping 60-yard passes, I don't think, although obviously having someone who can is nice. It's that, it's the staying rooted to the line like a table football goalkeeper who could only move sideways and make reaction saves. And that had a knock-on effect because the defenders either weren't sure if he was coming or not or had to assume he wasn't coming and just do everything themselves. And it meant the defensive line was so deep that it was much harder to condense the play, so harder to sustain attacks, harder to box the opposition. And that's the main thing I'm looking forward to not having. Yeah, Anana's catch rate is about double De Gea's in terms of like, I mean, it's, it's a, again, it's a funny data point, isn't it? Because like, just because a lot of crosses go in, you wouldn't necessarily expect a goalkeeper to collect many. And in fact, most of them are sub 10%. So, but it's about double. So he's competent, if, if that's a, a good way of measuring it. He's competent at catching the ball. He's obviously brilliant with his feet. His save rate post-shot. Expected goals against is just above water and it's in the 80th percentile or so. So he's a good shot stopper. It's not the best ever. And and I think it's fair to say at, at his very best, Dave was the best ever at that one thing. I don't know if I'd say Dave's the best shot stopper ever. I'd say reaction saves. I haven't seen anyone in the same postcode as him. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. unbelievable. The stuff he was able to do and he ended up relying on it. So with Onana... When I was watching a bit of him before, we, I watched some of Ajax's games the year we got to the, the Europa League final yeah. against them. And I wasn't massively impressed with his actual keeping of goal. Yeah. But I'm told that's improved quite a lot. But it's not even that. It's that the defenders will be confident playing in front of him because they know what he's going to do. Right. That if, basically, if there's a ball and it's between the goal line, probably in the penalty spot, he's going to come. Yeah. And once you know that, then it means that you can defend properly. That This is normal behaviour. And Dave was abnormal in that regard. But his his reaction saves with the feet, with the hands, were just absolutely sensational. And at his best, he was a massive rarity in that he was a goalkeeper who was fun to watch. And I can't think of many about whom I would say that. That's right. I mean, you, you pay your money to go see the creative players and the goal scorers, don't you? Not normally the keepers. And he was one of those few that you you might have bought a ticket to, to go see keep, maybe. I mean, but he was fun to watch and pulled off things. I mean, of course, the, the free kick against Chelsea and a few others that escaped me now where it seemed impossible that he'd actually do it. And I don't think we're going to get that with Anana. We're going to get a much more rounded keeper, at least this version of Dave, who seemed to have seemed to become a caricature of himself. I, I don't know if this is true in the data, but just seemed to come off his line even less, be even less confident with the ball at his feet. Or maybe it's just that more teams adopted a high press 
and that put him under pressure so much and and it, that became exposed but he just all his weaknesses seem to be more exposed than ever and his strengths less prominent which is of course why United have moved on and it's the right thing to do it's uh, but like 545 games and a few trophies, not many. That's, that's a not, lot of games. That's a hell of a lot of games. He's comfortably in the top 10 of, of appearances for for the club. 12 years. Maybe United stuck with him three years too many. If you were going to be absolutely ruthless. But of course, getting him off the books, £375,000 a week wages was going to be extremely difficult. So it's, I mean, it's, a, look, it's a hell of a shift for him. They should have got rid of him after the first season of Ole, where he was a very a very significant reason as to why they didn't qualify for the Champions League yeah. because he was shitting the run. Yeah. That, was, that was when I had personally had enough of him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I still felt at that time that the money probably needed to be spent in other areas of the squad more, more, more importantly because I felt like he could still do a job and I knew what we were getting where there were other dickheads in that squad who I felt like it's just absolutely shit and I must have a player who isn't you. But, I mean, I also, we do have to accept that United are responsible also for what happened with De Gea because for a long period, he was not challenged for his place. Mm-hmm. The team wasn't challenging for any serious titles and he was the only player in the team who was of a proper level. And at that point, it's quite easy to see how a person could go stale because they're not getting the level of competition in right. any aspect of their football that they need. Right. It felt a bit like that was what that was what happened with him. And and even when Sergio Romero was at the club, everyone knew his knees couldn't stand actually playing every week. And Dave must have known that too. So as much as as we all said he was a, a great number two, he was only ever going to be that because he just couldn't cope with playing a game every week so yeah yeah I mean it's only really that sort of half season when Henderson put him under pressure that he's ever been under pressure in 12 years at the club and some of that's to do with his performances but when they dropped off he didn't have a solution to that so there was also Anders Lindegaard who ended up doing much more nose picking than he had planned (laughs) yeah Romero was Romero what didn't win the Europa did he Romero was in that for that one was that I think that's right. Yeah, I think Romero is so in the yeah. So even so, yeah. even that, which is quite funny when you think about it. The only half decent player for so long in the post-Fergie wilderness years, and he wasn't allowed to win the trophy. He wasn't allowed to win all the trophies, the few trophies that we had, because he was being arrested because it was Europa League. Because Anana was in the the goal for Ajax that day, wasn't he? And that Ajax team has broken up and uh, some have done good things. I mean, a uh, couple of Barcelona players there and Delete and and some of them, like Davins de Sanchez, absolute trash for Tottenham. So I guess I guess not every not every young player is successful. Davins de Sanchez looked like someone who could have been a good player, but it was brilliant he ended up playing for Mourinho, who had made clear in a in a show of telling everyone how clever he was that when we played Ajax in that game. That basically the ball going to Davinson Sanchez was the was the, tra- was the uh, trigger press. Yeah, because <laughs> he was because he had because he had square feet. And then, although in fairness to Mourinho, he said something similar to Smalling, and then went and signed him, and he's been excellent. Which is to say, do I think that Smalling is still better than Harry Maguire? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess Harry Maguire. Now that you, now that you ask, <laughs> yeah. Now that Dave has gone, Harry Maguire is the one left in the squad that's going to be very hard to get rid of although actually if you if you it's same with 
David De Gea, David De Gea because because of the way that FFP works as a total squad costs, both wages and sales, and the fact that you you get the wages off and the FFP cost off by selling, it means you could basically a rambly way of saying, yeah, I could sell him for not very much and have a FFP benefit. And that's the way they should be thinking. Not let's get the biggest fee possible. And well, we'll just wait another year. Even if you sold him 20 million, you get a FFP bonus there and it's, uh, that'd be well worth it. Even if you sold Elanga, Henderson, Maguire, Fred, Hannibal, I bet there are others as well. I'd sell one of the right backs. I'd sell five bags if I could. But even if you sold all of them for five million quid each, there's a player there. Like there's another player that you can go yes. and buy, a proper yeah. player, just if you sell them for five million quid. And that's not that won't happen. I mean, it feels to me with Maguire, like the, the maneuverings to arrange him a nice safe exit has started. Whether it's the story about the wages being a problem, which is sort of the club felt like the, I mean, I'm guessing here, felt like the club briefing. But then him, I'm training really hard. I'm going to fight for my place. If you want me to go, you've got to pay me up. And they will but have to, yeah. It feels like it feels like your fifth choice, whatever it is, or third choice right centre back. So if you want to have a career, you need to live. I, I, I can't believe that Harry Maguire is going to stay. Because ultimately, if Ten Hag calls him in, and we're seeing the ruthlessness suggests he would do this if he had to. It says, I'm not going to pick you, son. I'm sorry, you have to go. I don't think that Harry Maguire is going to Winston behind it and say, well, I'm just going to pick up my salary now because... No, they'll come to an arrangement. To so if they sold Maguire for... Who wants to play? Yeah. If they sold Maguire for 20 million, 25 million, which is about his book value, 26 million is his book value. So 80 million divided by six. And and two years left on his contract. So sold him for 25 million, subsidized his wages for the next two years because he's not going to earn more than 100 grand at a mid-ranking Premier League team or Roma or whoever might have him next. Hint, hint, move. <laughs> then, then United's still above water on the FFP. It makes sense. I mean, I just think the calculations are very different in this world of squad cost as to like how you value a player you really want to get rid of. Or maybe it's been the same forever. It's just, it's like the numbers, are, they're hard numbers now. And you just look at, you can calculate they it. Have, they, they have meaning. For they have meaning, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I, it was always the case that a player is worth, ultimately, whatever someone will pay for him. Right. And you, as a feather, you, pay, you take to your choice whether you accept that. United have the choice of someone like Maguire, who they just need to get rid of him. Yeah. In that he's not going to play hardly at all. For whatever reason, he sort of attracts negative attention. Not picking him attracts negative attention. They're apparently he's going to apparently get stripped of the captaincy, which feels like he should have stripped himself. And I mean, I know we all want to be captain of Man United, so to say I'm not going to be captain of Man United it seems like something no one would ever want to say. But him getting sent on, on in the 91st minute and making sure to cut the armband, <laughs> obviously Bruno would, would give it to him. But for me. The thing that you say at that point is, what the fuck are you talking yeah. about? You're the captain now. I don't get picked. I don't play. But it feels, yeah, it feels with McGuire like this is this is end game and he will go. Mm -hmm. And I think Fred will probably go as well. And yeah, wages are an issue there as well. Like, but yeah, yeah. I mean, this coming back to the the 
the, the discussion around their youth team players that City have sold. And the same with Chelsea in the past. I mean, it's the fourth revenue stream, right? Commercial broadcasting match day player sales. And it's important as all of those. And United have missed out on this for a very, very long time. And it's some of the debate around the two youth team players that United have sold this season, summer, Iqbal and the other one who I've totally forgotten now, <laughs> Ethan Laird. Ethan Laird, who's gone to Birmingham. For about a million each, or so. Just like, so, I thought he was going. I thought he was going to be a player. I'm sort of saying, yeah. I mean, you can't stay fit, but I, I thought yeah. he, I thought he might be good. It's the fitness and like a Premier League time, yeah. The Hickbell deal is a good one because we get some money for him. The fact that this is the only deal they could get for him suggests that he's not anywhere near being a United player. Yeah. But if that turns out to be different, then then we can have him back. Yeah. Right. But you want to get to the point where. They are so well-known or so respected the academy. And that's part of the thing with City as well. Like, it's a well-respected academy. They know that they're going to get a player. And and I think that's proven to be true, not only in terms of the players they've sold on, but how how high the quality of those players is. And you want to get to that point where you're able to, to make 30, 40 million pounds worth of player sales, which in FFP terms equates to 200 million pounds worth of purchases, right? It's so... It's it's a really significant factor, uh, and one United has totally failed on. But maybe we're well, you know as we've seen with the deals done this summer, we're, like it looks more competent in terms of getting them done and getting them done for the kind of fee they want to spend. I mean, t- when's the last time United bought two players before mid July? Just don't remember it. I, I may be forgetting, but I just I don't remember I mean, where that's been done. And and so you can be a kind of rounded department there. Murtar and team, if they survive the takeover, if that ever happens, then United will be in a much, much stronger position. And uh, Beak, Beak's another one who's going to go. Yes, but also, yeah. yeah, what you say about Chelsea, Chelsea were running basically almost a separate business, a separate talent business. Yeah. Where yeah. there's the team on the pitch and then there's the players that they buy, almost none of whom ever, come to, ever play for Chelsea, but who are good enough to play for other clubs. And for whatever reason, they were able to make that work in, in a way that United could not and have not. And, I mean, they're now obviously doing it in slightly different ways. I I mean, Chelsea just strike me as one of those clubs who you kind of think, oh, Daniel, why do you want to play for them? <laughs> just in terms of, like, what does it mean to play for Chelsea? I, I Yeah, no, I think that's a good question. I don't even know what we, what do we, what do you think? Clear Lake have come in, Bowling Clear Lake and their backers in the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund have come in and done these hundreds, what feels like hundreds of millions of pounds worth of deals. I mean, I guess it is hundreds of millions of pounds worth of deals. And I'm not sure what their vision is there. They seem to be very, they seem to be very competent at getting deals done. I mean, I guess because they'll pay whatever it takes, and everyone now knows that. You just uh, say I, what the number is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, don't, I really don't know what that means in terms of the team. It's they're shifting a lot of players in and a lot of players out again this summer. I mean, obviously selling a lot, and it's helpful that they happen to be selling them to the same entity that is funding Clear Lake Capital. I mean, conspiracy theory, but I mean, it is it is an odd relationship, isn't it? So that's that's helpful. The Stiff don't own a very significant amount of clear. They can probably aren't involved in you know? No, they are they are an LP in, in the, the, the fund. So I, I'm I my tongue is firmly in my GQ here, but it I mean it still is a related yeah. party in so not not in UEFA terms, but in reality. 
It looks sus. I mean, you can't pretend. You can't pretend <laughs> it's not. It's like selling all these players. You bust a shitload of money. What do you even have it on all these players? Then you're stuck with them on these colossal long contracts. Yep. How and to the point where what you do now? Oh, look! Some people that own some of us have bought every club in a league. So they can just buy and basically fucking allocate. Yeah, yeah. Oldbridge yeah. Point, Stephen Gerrard. Oh, Stephen Gerrard. Perfect for him, isn't it? Perfect. Yeah. I'm glad he's ruined his managerial career already. <laughs> yes. So many thoughts about, about that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, what they do, what, what they might do to him if he's crap. Ah. Wendy's crap. D- delightful thoughts. Yeah. It's interesting that United haven't tried to tap that tap that strip revenue stream either because England caps in Harry Maguire. What what a coup that would be for one of the PIF owned clubs or aligned clubs, of which there are eight. There's quite a market to tap into. Great place to sell him, but may, maybe England caps in Harry Maguire. He's not England captain anymore, is he? Or has he ever been? Never was, was he? No, he never was. No, I don't think he ever was. Yeah, England's Harry Maguire. Would be a, would be a coup, but you know, I haven't managed to to do that deal, and I, maybe Harry doesn't want it yet. But yeah, I mean, modern football is. I mean, I, I talked with Karim Zidane the other day, the other week, about what is happening in the Gulf and wider, and it's just the state of modern football. Where we had a ruling this week on on related clubs or or group owned clubs about Aston Villa, and I forget which club they're related to. And and Union St. Gawals and Brighton and and it looks like UEFA are kind of moving towards a, okay, we'll accept it because actually the restrictions were quite lightweight. It's Vitoria, isn't it? Portuguese club. Villa had to sell some shares, but with Union St. Gawals, where the actual share ownership is much larger, the Tony Bloom, all they had was they moved out some directors, the same as RB Leipzig. And I'll be Salzburg, and it's given us the template. So, what's the modern thing? We're going to have networks of clubs and and state-owned clubs in Saudi Arabia, both within the country and externally. And and this is this is this is where modern football is. It's going to be battles of networks and states, and a few super clubs trying to compete with it. I mean, it sinks. It sinks. However, first of all, the first club to do this almost was United with Antwerp. Turn the yeah. century where there's a relationship, yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, to be a feeder club, but yeah, but still, and also, if it didn't work in this way, then how does it work? So, what you might have is what you did have was you had Basil of Ferguson going, Oh, dad, um, I could use some players here, yeah. Oh, all right, son, that I mean, there's something, and that's just an example that. I mean, I know that's how business works. Obviously, if you have causal relations yeah, yeah. with a body, then you might do business with them. And yet, it doesn't seem entirely fair that if your dad happens to be Alex Ferguson, then you have call on play on some Manchester United players who can help you. So I don't actually know. I don't know what the what the answer to this is because that doesn't seem right either. But obviously, this multi-club ownership model where a club exists in order to facilitate a different club is fucking revolting. Yeah. Well, the, the restrictions UEFA have put on it now are, I mean, it was 30%, wasn't it? And I think it's 25% in the Football League 
in terms of like shared ownership. But they now said no one club can own shares in another club. Well, that wasn't happening anyway. It's a group company that owns the owns the, the shares. Related directors, so they kind of a director can't be on two boards. Well, that, that's been easy. The Red Bull clubs like showed the model there, prove that the share owner doesn't have influence. It's going to be impossible. They've said they can't do transfers until September 24. I guess they'll roll that over. So I don't know whether they're going to permanently ban transfers between group clubs or not. That's unclear. And then they've said they can't share databases of scouting. Like, prove it. Prove that's not happening. It's going to be impossible. And then UEFA are never going to be able to police this. So I think we're moving to a point, and Seferin already said in that interview with Gary Neville six months ago or something, that they were going to look at it again. And I think, like, in the end, they'll bow to what the clubs want. And if and it looks now about 30% of clubs in Europe's top five leagues has some kind of re- relationship with other clubs, whether it's formal ownership or, or, or less than 30% ownership. That is a hell of a lot of clubs now in, in networks. And it, it just seems to be where we're moving. And, and uh, governing bodies aren't, aren't, like, are not able to cope with this. I mean, it's been happening for a, a lot. I mean, Real Madrid, Castilla have been... They sure. played West Ham in... The Cup Winners' Cup, maybe in the early eighties. Wow, well, yeah, yeah. Which is bizarre. They won the Spanish. They won the Spanish Cup. I think it was the Cup, whatever it was. But yeah, like so, it's been going on. It's been going on a long time. This in in some form or other, and but this kind of idea of the same people own loads of football clubs is just yeah. I mean, it's it it, it just feels so extraordinarily wrong because those people will have priorities and the priorities won't even really be the club at the top in, in many in many situations. No, it's a, it's a network group and they're looking at... It's like team orders in F1, isn't it? So what's more important here, the, the team and the Constructors' Championship or or, or the individual title? And, and sometimes that's unclear. And so Neither I, of them is yeah, the answer. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with some of these group clubs, so the relationship that... John Texter owns at least some part of Crystal Palace and, and owns Leon now. He's having some financial troubles because he's he's asset rich, cash poor, and uh, it's unclear. Like in financial terms, Crystal Palace is obviously much richer, but in in terms of popularity and historical success, I don't think that's as clear at all. So, which is the 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 the, the big dog in that group? Is it Leon, or is it Palace, Leon, or is it one of the others? Leon. So. 15, 20 years ago, Neil were an example of how to run a football club. Right, yeah. Like, when Alice, when Alice was running it, I mean, in 2008, United scraped by them in the Champions League. Yeah. And, yeah. but even, even before that, when they won, when they won all those leagues in a row, was that when Paul the, Paul the I'm talking, when Paul the Graham, Paul the Graham was managing before, before he went to Rangers and totally flamed out and hilarious time. But, there were, a model, almost a model football club, Leon, for a period. For a period, and, yeah. And fucking yeah. now look, um, yeah. Now look, it's just now they're a mid-ranked side yeah, in a so... in a the the worst of the top five leagues in Europe. Yeah, sure. But yeah, that that group owns Botafogo, Crystal Palace, and Leon, and and there's obviously there's the Villa Vitoria relationship. There's the as I said, Brighton Union Saint Galois. There's the RB clubs. There's a lot of there's a lot of mid-ranked, and this has not been proven out. There's a lot of kind of mid-ranked and tier two clubs in networks as well. It's 
Like that's not been proven to be a financially successful model yet, but everyone's looking for efficiencies and, and uh, especially American private capital, private equity seems to think that uh, football is sort of undervalued or under monetized and, and we'll find out whether they're, they're correcting that assumption or not. Before we go, no real movement on the Manchester United sale. Amazing that it's gone on this long. And despite all the proclamations of people who seem to know, think they know what they're talking about, none of it has proven to be true. So we're, uh, what are we, three weeks on now from the Reuters report that said Qatar are going to be exclusive bidders? So I, I'm not subtweeting you. <laughs> so, sorry, I may have missed it. Uh, did you proclaim knowledge? <laughs> These twats who proclaim they know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I said that, that Ratcliffe thinks that it's in. Right, right. But for the fact that there are aspects of shadiness going on that makes him wonder if the Glazers are still playing both sides. Yeah, in yeah. his mind, the stage of discussion at which he is now at is way beyond the negotiation stage. Yes, yeah. And it's the stuff you do when the acquisition when the acquisition right. is going through. It, although now, it does seem that both sides are doing that and they're not going to name an exclusive bidder and they're just going to go down to the details with all of them and they're still the three options are well four options are still on the table. That's Ratcliffe, that's a partial sale, but eventually a full sale. The Qataris a full sale. Private equity, whether that's Elliot or Carlisle or a mixture of them. So, yeah, effectively more what what in the biz we call structured debt or structured equity or no sale at all, which seems the most unlikely given that the Glazers cannot fund the club beyond its own its own revenues. But, yeah, they're, they're effectively all on the table because no decision has been made and the, the family seems to be squabbling with each other. I have no knowledge of this, but it's, it's interesting. The Reuters report a few weeks back, which was so certain, but then couched it all in this kind of conditional language. I just didn't, I read that, everyone freaked out about it. I was like, I don't believe it. And the reporter in question has, who's a kind of M&A reporter who's actually reported some very accurate stuff on the company I used to work for. But I didn't believe that one. And I, I think the sources appear to be within Rain Group uh, who are selectively letting information out into the public domain, which is kind of naughty given how it's a publicly listed company but selectively letting information out to create some kind of jeopardy in a two-horse race is my reading of it all. Could also be completely wrong because, you know, what do we actually know? Fuck all, basically. It's uh, it's a horrible mess. I just The idea that we're going to end up in the new season with the Glazers still in charge, it's just uh, unconscionable, really. But but there's a real, real possibility that's where we're going to be. But better better than two of the other options, better than rain and better than cattle by many, many orders of magnitude. So yeah. 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 Which, which takes us, takes us sort of full circle to the, this idea of like who, who owns what in European football. And I, th- I think it was, uh, I forget which, I forget which journalist now, but one, one of the PA sport journalists yesterday was saying that if Qatar don't get United, they may move on to another Premier League club because that's what they want. And it's not nothing to do with the love of the club, we're supposed to believe from Sheikh Jassim, but much more likely the glory of the state. And I wouldn't be surprised if that happens, but I'd much rather that happens and they take over someone else and pump billions in, than they take over United and United a, a political vehicle. But but we still don't know, and it's just 
I mean, if the if the Glazers are still there with and they've taken a billion from I don't know Elliot for thirty percent of the club or twenty five percent of the club or whatever, and it's basically debt. It's equity with a bunch of strings attached. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying the fans are going to riot, but but they broke into Old Trafford for less, for sure. There seems to be less opposition to Qatar because people have become fixated on getting the Glazers out rather than fixated on a good outcome for United. And yeah. the only reason you want you can possibly want Qatar is if you prioritise success for your favourite football club over right over what you know to be right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And this and this isn't this is even before we talk about what you know about Qatar itself. Just it could be any state. No state should I hit a football club. I mean, I can't believe I have to say these words and there'll be people listening or or I've written them going, what are you talking about? I mean, it, 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 it's mind-blowing, really. And part of me just thinks, well, it can't Qatar. What if Qatar end up buying United? If Qatar buy United, just take them to somewhere, a Super League, and then we can have actual Manchester United competing in the Premier League. And... That to me would be a better outcome, I think, than Qatar just owning Manchester United forevermore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and of course, there's a lot of dissonance around this. Yeah, not not only in terms of the moral rights and wrongs of of this particular state, but also an interesting sort of straw man arguments that are, that appear, which is, well, it's an individual bid, but we want the billions in state funding. And and that's is it? Like I I've I've gotten sick so sick of having this argument with people in the Twitter sphere that I've I've stopped doing it. I'm just not going to have that conversation anymore because you can't convince anybody at this stage. But but years ago now, an author who I like called Shalom Auslander wrote a piece. It was on Israel's Independence Day, and he wrote a piece about his dog. He wrote a piece. He bought a dog, and he loved this dog, and this dog was so cute, and it was part of the family, and it loved him, and it gave him the sense of belonging, and the sense of identity, and the sense of family, and companionship, and all this shit. And gradually, he started to discover that his dog sniffed its own shit, ate its own shit, sniffed other dogs' assholes, licked its own balls, all these things, and he realised that actually. His dog was just like all the other dogs, which is to say there was an allegory that this state of Israel that he'd been raised to think would be this different thing to all the other states was, in fact, similar to states in terms of its use of force to get what it wanted. And that's what I mean when I say that no state should own Manchester United, because it's not specifically because it's Qatar or specifically because for any other reason, although the fact that it is Qatar brings with it things yeah. that I find extremely troubling and disquieting. But no state should own United because they're all fucking states. Yes. And that's not acceptable because 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 of that. Yes, and it just happens to be it's generally the states with troublesome human rights records that want to buy football clubs. But yes, I agree, any state. And I think we would have this conversation, as we've mentioned before, if it was the UK government trying to buy a football club to wash its reputation. It just did the Olympics instead. Yeah, or even not to even not to wash its reputation, just to fucking own 
because a state's interest is not Manchester United. Correct. And neither should it be. Yes. But then if yes. you're owned by someone who's interested, not Manchester United, even if sometimes those interests align, that's not, that's not how it should be. And that's not, yeah, it's, it, it's just, it's wrong. And Manchester United means far too much to me and to lots and lots of other people to not care about who owns it, the provenance of the money that United have, right. what United comes to represent, and all, exactly. of those, all of those other things. Yes. Manchester United was set up by railway workers who were looking for something to do with their spare time for a sense of identity, for a sense of belonging, for a, a club. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's called Football Club. And that's why when the PLC took Football Club off the badge, why it, it meant was such, so much. Why it was such a big yeah. deal. Because yeah. it, it meant that actually you're, you're changing our football club into a trademark in order to make money up in whatever way possible for people that aren't the football club. And obviously the world has changed a lot since then, but a like-minded association of individuals who come together for pleasure is what this is. And for that to be owned by anyone is immoral. And to bring us um, full circle, will Dave sign their contract in Saudi Arabia? It's on the table. <laughs> Would he do it? But also, Jurakov shouldn't own it either. It's just no one. The Glazers shouldn't own it. A PLC shouldn't own it. No one should fucking own Manchester United Football Club in the same way that no one should own water. Yeah. However, certain things have enough communal yeah, value right. that they should belong to everyone and no one. Yeah. Where I live, utilities are owned by the people. This is in the heartbed of capitalism, but even there, it's, it's this realised that having private ownership doesn't make sense. But I agree with you, and and we saw, we saw what was it last week? Bayern fans forcing the club to drop uh, Qatar Airways as a as a sponsor because they effectively have a golden share, and they they may not be the only owners of the club. There is private interest in in German football clubs, but they can't be more than fifty minus one. Those private in interests and and the, the the fans have when they are able to get a, a unified voice, which they do in German culture, they were able to to force that out, force their sponsors out, and sadly that is not the case with United. So, and not going to be the case. But there are definitely amongst the very bad choices, there are some better ones. I think. Hopefully, we'll get more news, but it doesn't appear to be that we're it's imminent. But if you're right in your information that they are down to the dot in the I's and crossing the T's on the potential structure of these deals, and it could be executed quickly, which can be. The owners and directors test can only be done after the sale is completed. Right? So that madness of the Premier League wouldn't par parallel track this, but they won't. So we will have the fun and games over whether it is the Qatari state or not <laughs> under layers of corporate corporate nonsense that they've put in place but yeah if it's them or if it's any us we'll have a nice nice conversation about multi-club ownership at least well not this year because uh, nice didn't qualify for europe but at some point in the future so. all righty i guess that's it good luck to dave on whatever he does next i, I yeah what, what if you were betting what would it be lower tier spanish club head home take the money on offer from uh, from the saudis retire he could do he's made enough money <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Um, 
it's I mean, he's not doesn't appear to be overburdened with offers. No, he doesn't, does he? Well, he's just got married. Maybe he can go enjoy that for a few more months. Oh, muscle top, Dave. Well, good luck, Dave. Thank, thanks for the 545 games. And we're recording on Wednesday. United are about to play the first preseason game, of which there are many, many. Have you seen how long the preseason fixture list is this year? It's incredible. I am going to Murrayfield a week today yeah. to watch United and Leon. Yeah, well, we have uh, we have the game in Oslo tonight against Leeds, and we've got the Murrayfield game, and head across to the States for four games. So three games in it. It's Arsenal... Real Madrid and Dortmund, and then they come back to Europe for a game against Athletic Bilbao in Dublin, and then they've got a couple of games at Old Trafford. I think it's eight in total. It may well be the longest preseason ever. I I think that's a good thing because when I, I the biggest not the biggest one of the differences between United being good and United being shit is actually what I do when the fixture list comes out. So I always, I'd always look. I never had to look. I do now. I never had to look at my birthday because my birthday was always cup quarterfinals. They've changed that now, which is sort of upsetting, actually. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway, I can remember very distinctly the joy of coming back from my football party in 1986 to watch the recording of the West Ham game in the cup where we lose 2-0. Although the previous year, we had had the same. We'd beaten 4-2 with Norm scoring a hat-trick. But I, I used to look at the run-in and now I look at the start. Because I know, I know that for a team that is seeking to become challengers rather than the team that is already there, yeah, you need you need a start. You need to you need to rack up points at the start. Yeah, like yeah. Two thousand and seven, United were able. United got momentum because they had a friendly. They had a friendly beginning. So I think that they need to be. Yeah, they need they need to be fit at the beginning of the season because they can't waste the beginning of the season this time. Like yeah, yeah. Losing the first two games, and, and we do time. have a few if they tough fixtures. Yeah. And, and Arsenal, Brighton, Arsenal and Spurs in the first six fixtures, something like that. Starting against Wolverhampton, how many will Andre Adana flap at and we'll all freak out there? No, it'll be interesting. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm desperate to see a goalkeeper come and flap for a cross. <laughs> yeah, at least try. <laughs> Just give it a go, son. Intr- yeah. Introducing free, free song to strides at the mere thoughts. Very nice. Right, we'll catch you after, well, after one of these preseason games. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We're getting back into the football, so having having spent the summer talking about all the various issues. But thanks. Catch you soon, Dan. Please.